Hiya, Georgie. Welcome to my world. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast in which we invite a guest on to discuss three movies of one of their favourite directors. Tonight I'm delighted to be joined by journalist, podcaster, YouTube content creator, uh, endless list of stuff, and the queen of the extreme, Zoe Rose Smith. Hi Zoe, how are you doing? I am doing good. I'm very excited that we're finally talking <laughs> together yeah. after what seems like a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Um, but we'll go, we'll get on to your director um, a wee bit later on. I just wanted to have a general chat about cinema for yourself and your kind of, not bringing on it as such, but just sort of experiences you've had that have kind of had a lasting impression on you. Um is there anything that you remember as being like your first major cinematic experience that kind of sticks out? So I was thinking about this mm. and um, I feel like you're going to love this because it's very um, not what anyone's going to be expecting. So <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I think most people would expect that one of my first cinematic experience would be with horror. Mm. Um, but the one that stands out to me and to me, it's it's a horror um thing that happened but the first kind of like cinematic experience I remember is going to see the Mr Bean (laughs) movie (laughs) (laughs) and it's the one where he um defaces one I think I don't know whether it's the Mona Lisa or like a really famous painting and I have like a genuine trauma from that film I have never ever like felt so anxious so stressed out (laughs) watching a film and honestly to this day I cannot watch anything Mr Bean Mm -hmm. without having like heart palpitations (laughs) and I know this sounds like absurd but it is my first memory of going to the cinema and my mum said that I was screaming I was crying and I didn't go to the cinema for like years after seeing that movie (laughs) because it just messed me up so much so I don't know if that was quite the cinematic experience you were kind of hoping for but um (laughs) that's the first one I remember that's ideal um and uh, we were before we came on there talking about the the iceberg and I think the bean movie would certainly be down the bottom of that iceberg in terms of extreme (laughs) uh I've seen that years ago god um, I can't remember anything about it. Does he go to Hollywood or something, or he goes to he goes yeah. traveling, or yeah, yeah. Uh, the Bean was quite a big thing for me growing up, just because it was easy to watch. There was nothing really you had to worry about. <laughs> no, it's been a while since that, and I, I, I think, think you remember it wrong because there was a lot to worry about. There was <laughs> many stressful situations in that film that I did not like. <laughs> 
rewatch it and come back to me and tell me. <laughs> you put me through three this week. That's enough. I'm not going back to Bean. <laughs> I know. I feel like, you know, um, I feel like they kind of fit, it fits within the three <laughs> films. I think, you know, it would be the perfect kind of ending for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm off tomorrow, so I'll maybe give it a revisit and let you know. Um, is there anything you can think of that is your favourite moment in cinema, whether it's been in, it doesn't necessarily have to have been in the cinema, but just something again that, um, like for, for want of a better word, has made you kind of fall in love with cinema the way you do now? Um, so I guess like, I guess there's a really good example for me. And I think this kind of, it does play into horror. So, um, mm-hmm. I feel like you'd be glad to know that it's not all just <laughs> Mr. Bean trauma experiences that we're going to bring up. But um, one of the things that like really reminds me of, you know, kind of cinematic experiences and it did happen in the cinema. Um, and again, kind of goes back to one of the reasons why I love like the horror genre in terms of the fact that it plays with people so differently is I think when I was probably around, I'm going to say about 16, um, 30 Days of Night came out in Mm -hmm. the cinema. Um, And at that time, they used to release films in the cinema without a rating yet. So me and my friends, me and my two friends from school, um, Jenny and Juliet, we were like, let's go and see it. Like, we know it's definitely too gory for us, but we can get in to that film and that was probably one of the first horror films I'd ever seen in the cinema mm. we we kind of guessed it was probably going to end up being an 18 but we were like let's go now no one's gonna stop us so we went in so me and my friend Jenny we thought it was so much fun you know we were laughing we were screaming we we're like it's it's hilarious it's bloody it's gory it's everything we wanted from like seeing a horror film in the cinema but my friend Juliet, who is a bit of a wimp, um, and she won't be upset for me saying that, she genuinely spelt the, spent the entire film under the cinema seat in tears. Like, she <laughs> was petrified. And I think yeah. for me, being able to watch a horror film in the cinema through her her kind of fear was so exciting. I think um, that kind of, like, really helped kick off my love of horror and the fact of like how when you watch a horror film like or even a film like the ones we're going to talk about um Mm. today how people have like such different reactions to them um and it really can tie into like people's fears and I think also you know she's seen that film like years later when we watched it together and she's like I don't know why I screamed so much and was under the chair so much it's not that bad and I was like and there you were like crying like a little baby under the chair Mm. so yeah that was a great experience for me Mm. and yeah one of the kind of moments that really made me like love horror so much Mm The, the thing that you said there about movies not having certificates, that's never something, I don't think we've ever had that up here. Maybe we just got them later in Scotland, let you so let trial them out first, and then <laughs> we, got, we got the rated ones. I can't ever remember anything like that, that's quite interesting. I don't know whether it was, um, I mean, I come from a bit of a rough town, to be honest, so maybe they were like, you know, the kids here are already quite messed up, like, we're showing the 18s, they'll be fine, they've seen yeah. worse at home, you never know. Mm. Yeah, I remember, um, I remember liking that movie, 
Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it though, but um, I think it's something that you're saying there with reacting to your friend. It's something that happens quite a lot in horror. Like it's kind of similar to comedy. People react to those around about them, which makes the experience kind of more enjoyable or more terrifying. The people that are scared, if they hear the other people being scared, it kind of takes away that safety net for them. And that's definitely something that you can you can uh, see in a lot of horror. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many of my friends are, yeah, they will watch horror films with me because they're like, oh, you can tell me when the scary bit is. Obviously, I'm like, this bit's the nice bit. And then I'm like, oh, sorry, someone got decapitated. My bad. (laughs) This is the easy bit, bang heads off. (laughs) Um, So we're going to go to your director now. And for this, you have chosen Lars von Trier. What has made you choose him, apart from the fact that if he is your your favourite director, what is it about him that intrigues you? so much um i love how controversial he is as a director um you know me anything that's got the kind of words controversial um against the title i'm like yes i need i need that i need that in my life um i think for me lars von trier is a really progressive director i think he is constantly pushing the boundaries but doing so in quite an artistic way i think when you look at um extreme cinema on a whole and that doesn't necessarily have to be uh within the horror category it can just be kind of like more um extreme or taboo cinema you know a lot of like new french extremity films they're not necessarily horror films but they are certainly within that kind of extreme tag i think for Lars von Trier he looks at that and looks at how he can kind of take what is a taboo topic something that is going to really rile up the audience and get people kind of flustered in a way that they're not normally used to but Mm -hmm. project it with a way that's you know got an art lens on it that does kind of go okay you know cinema is an outlet where we can explore even the darkest um aspects of of you know humanity but I'm going to do that with you know and a lens on it that's perhaps not as depraved as let's say something like August Underground that literally just makes you go I am watching a snuff movie right now Lars von Trier kind of goes no no there can be a beauty to the depraved and I really like that about him I think that's to me, that's kind of what filmmaking is about, is making people feel uncomfortable and perhaps uh, question what they're watching, but also mm-hmm. give them the opportunity to go, this movie is completely depraved and horrendous, but cinematography is beautiful, um, you know, lighting, etc., is is amazing. And that seems to really get people upset. And I like it when people get upset by directors' movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he um, he's certainly someone, even though he is kind of, as you're saying, he's on the extreme side. He's art house. Mm. He's still, even myself, who isn't really kind of clued up on the side of the extreme or the arts, art cinema world, he's well known. He's always been well known, whether it's yeah. through controversial means or his movies. Still, I can remember certainly. I think at least Antichrist had a fairly 
decent kind of release in terms of the amount of cinemas it was shown in. Mm. Um, I'm sure it was shown in the cine world up here, um, and it could at least remember the poster. Um, but he seems to be one that's kind of on the, the kind of precipice of that art house slash mainstream horror or mainstream cinema uh, style of director. Yeah, he's not. Um... He's probably not as underground as as some of the other ones that I mm-hmm. would typically go to. And, and like you said, you know, you'll see his films at places like Cannes. You'll see his films, you know, in the cinemas there. You know, they're on all the kind of subscription channels. They're almost, in a way, seen as more kind of like highbrow um, film pieces and that's not me trying to say like, oh, my, my taste is, you know, better than <laughs> everyone else's. <laughs> not... Elevated horror. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> We're going to kick him off, Andy, don't start. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's got that, he's got that something else to him. He kind of takes what are, you know, those controversial topics and with the fact that he is, you know, more in the mainstream, he shoves it in people's faces. And I'm like, why not? Like, why not do that? Um, mm. I think that's, I think it's really bold filmmaking. Yeah. I think um, you mentioned there, obviously, a bit of something I was going to ask you, actually, when you said extreme cinema isn't necessarily horror. I think there can be horrific elements in movies and there can be kind of boundary pushing elements certainly yeah. to Lars von Trier's stuff. Um, do you think sometimes that maybe gets lost with more heavy-handed filmmakers? The kind of jumping from something that is extreme but shown through, as you're saying, brilliant cinematography or great performances and someone that thinks that extreme cinema is just putting like almost like a sensory overload into your eyeballs and just making you react to that. Yeah, I guess I guess it kind of depends on on the film and what you're after. Um, I think a lot of extreme is more beneficial towards the films that look at you know those more kind of taboo subjects in a way that's not as you said, you know, like sensory overload, just bam in your face. I think a lot of, I mean, personally, a lot of my favourite kind of pieces of extreme cinema don't rely on, oh my God, here's someone, you know, 40 minutes of torture, let's just watch every limb being cut yeah. off. I think if you you look at it in historical sense, something like uh, Paolo Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom is a perfect example. It's a very well-made film. Yes, it does have extensive scenes of people eating um, human shit, which <laughs> you know is, is is not the nicest thing to watch. But if you if you watch the entirety of the film, like it's very well shot, it's well mm. acted, it has some stunning um, scenes and set pieces throughout the film. Like it is a great piece of filmmaking but it does really disgust and disturb you. Whereas something like Slaughtered Vomit Dolls, it's a sensory overload. Even me, Mm. I'm like, but there's a time and place for that. And I've watched it on days where I've gone, do you know what? I just want something that is nasty. I don't want to think about it. I don't want the art of it. I just want nasty, nasty movie. Then I've put something on like that and gone, ah, you know, maybe I didn't, didn't want to watch someone vomit for 50 minutes, but here I am, you know, I'm yeah. watching it. So yeah. I, I I think they have their 
their places but I do think a lot of people as you kind of mentioned like get caught up in going right to make it extreme um you know and I think about a lot of the books I read I love extreme books and a lot of them you know the opening sentence it's like I'm a paedophile that's murdered you know 20 children and had sex with their corpses and I'm like you don't need that no you can do it much more subtly yeah and it's just as disturbing sometimes it's a bit bit OTT Hmm. that's a that's a a great point like you just get the I think for me this is maybe a good kind of um, touching point for me to get if I was, uh, like to into a bit more extreme cinema, um, because he is Lars von Trier is such a he's very conscious of the shots he makes and score and things like that as well. So it's like an amalgamation of the both worlds. Um, so we're going to come on to the first movie, and the first one we're going to discuss is the House That Jack Built. Um, do you want to give a wee brief synopsis of that? Yeah, of course. Uh, so we follow a man called Jack, um, played by Matt Dillon, who self-proclaimed serial killer. Um, he's also an architect, which is very important to the plot, um, hence the title of the film. Um, and we follow him as he's t- talking to someone called Verge, who we find out later in the film um, a little bit about who that is and where perhaps he lies in the story. Um, and Jack takes us through various incidents randomly selected from his career let's say as a serial killer um that he feels perfectly kind of portray um his idiosyncrasies and how he goes around selecting victims um and the film basically dissects excuse the pun um (laughs) (laughs) different murders that he's committed over i think it's a 12 year period in his um serial killing process and yeah we basically just have a look at what he did and how he committed those murders it's very I guess it's quite methodical in the way that it represents them um but that's pretty much the plot there's not Mm. there's not much else to it to be honest I've never yelled at you before Al but I'm about to now what does that look like to you? What does that say there? Uh, 30-odd-6. 30-odd-6, that's correct. Yeah. It also says Full Metal Jacket. When I look inside... Get me a goddamn box, out. And this time, make sure it's got Full Metal Jacket bullets in it. Is it too much to fucking ask that the contents of the box match what's written on the label? I can... I can see that, uh, you're right, the label doesn't quite match the, uh, c- contents, but yeah, what, what... That's correct. Yeah, but uh, yeah. thing is, what I can't see is that the, the, the box was bought here in the shop. I, well, I buy all my shit here. I have for 20 years. I'm in here almost every other week. What's wrong with you, Al? I'm sorry, I need to see a receipt. Receipt? Yeah. Well, I don't have a fucking receipt. I don't ever recall getting a receipt here. Now I'm in a fucking hurry. Let me buy a new box. 
But this time, make sure it contains full metal jacket bullets. Okay, the, can I just see some ID first? Don't fucking do this, Al. The thing is, the, the law requires that I have... How about this? No doubt about you. Your ID. It's only just one full metal jacket bullet. Can I... Can I just add... Why just... One? Well, that would be none of your fucking business. That, that's right. I, okay? I'm sorry. I do okay. business here because you don't ask stupid questions. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Shut it down, Al. Go okay. home. Have a sandwich. You lost your fucking mind, Al. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When talking about, so before we go on, I'll just say as well, we're going to jump about. There'll be spoilers for anyone that's not seen the house that Jack built. Um, it's a spoiler-filled zone, not spoiler-free. Um, the interesting thing which sets up and Jack discusses incidents. Mm. He never seems to call them murders or... Is that, do you think, the way that he's portrayed, does he see anything particularly wrong with what he's doing. He sees it as a, an art form, really. So he obviously doesn't see them as... I don't know if he necessarily sees them as murders, but when he's describing them, he's talking about incidents instead. Yeah, I don't I don't think he does see them as murders. I think he sees them, like you said, to him, they're, they're incidents. They're things that happened um, yeah. in his lifespan that perhaps kind of describe him and represent different... I think a lot of the time he kind of talks about them almost kind of representing different, you know, aspects of his life, periods of time in his life, how he was feeling, what he was interested in. Um, mm. And I think it's really symbolizes, you know, serial killers and how they will often talk about murders that they committed to them they see them very very differently um to how the outside world see it you know to anyone mm. in the outside world it's like no no <laughs> you committed a horrific murder and did mm -hmm. nasty nasty things and they're like no no well that was just you know a scenario um that happened at the time i mean i listened to um a podcast uh, this morning talking about um, a German man back in 2001 who killed and ate uh, a young man in his house who wanted to be killed and eaten. I don't know, yeah. lots of weird stuff going on there. But to him, mm -hmm. he's like, no, no, we just, you know, we're both consenting. We did what we wanted. And everyone on the jury was like, no, you murdered him and you're a cannibal. And he's like, nah, he asked for it. It was how he wanted to die. And I was like, well, I guess from his point of view, yeah, but no, like, <laughs> he's mm. a cannibal. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's having a, it's almost like the wires crossed in, <laughs> yeah. in, in his head where he just doesn't see it. And as you're saying with the, the German, I remember that story, actually. I remember being horrified by it and just thinking, the guy and the guy was saying, he's like, no, this was a consensual act. There was yeah. nothing wrong with what happened. <laughs> and we were saying, well, uh, I mean, you, you shut out bits of him the next day. I think that's not a good thing. Like, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I remember that it was quite a quite a horrific story, and it just shows as you're saying, like there's just a, a kind of an empathetic detachment, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with those types of characters, he's so um, 
I think you even said it to me like before before we discussed this like he's so emotionless there's mm-hmm. really he he kind of just approaches it as if I guess in the way that you would like a recipe like following a recipe it's like step one you do this step two you do this to him it's the same kind of you know step by step this is how you murder someone but it's just mm-hmm. he's like yeah this is just normal this is my everyday life how I go about it yeah it was one of the things that yeah we we had spoke about and I found the film quite cold and how it and how it portrays it quite cold and you said methodical yeah. earlier on as well how it portrays the um the murders and I don't know if that's from von Trier's perspective of how he's filming it in terms of he's filming it obviously it's Jack's telling the story, so is it maybe that's why it seems so cold and methodical. It was a, one, one of the parts that I really did quite struggle with the movie. Again, as I said, not being a extreme cinema, um, like a, an extreme cinema fan from... Uh, so it, it, it's, it was quite a struggle, sorry, start again with that, um, how I felt with that anyway. Yeah, I mean, it like when you said it was a cold film, I can totally see it. Like, and I think in a way, I think one a lot of extreme films are quite cold just because I guess the subject matter they go after isn't like they are cold subjects. They are bleak in a way you know comes to mind a film like something like snowtown murders it's so bleak because it's talking about like serial killers and i think like generally as a topic like serial killing is something that does really kind of leave this like coldness on you because it feels so close to reality um and i think you know von trier with this it's it's obviously his kind of commentary on the fact that, you know, society are obsessed with serial killers and we're kind of going like, oh, it's so bad for the victims, but we're like, oh, yeah, let's watch a 12-part Netflix series about how they cut all their body parts off and, you know, stuck their God knows what in what parts, you know. And that's that's yeah. quite, I mean, it's quite dark to think that we're so obsessed with that. So I think it's Von Trier's, I think it's his take on kind of representing that However, and I know when we discussed this before, you were like, okay, well, I find a lot of humour in this film. So to me, okay. there's a there's an aspect of warmness in here towards Jack, which I don't know what that says about me, to be honest. <laughs> but I really like his character. Um, and I don't know whether it's just because Matt Dillon is so great in this, this movie, but I genuinely crack up at some of the scenes and I do question whether I'm all right or whether it was intended to be kind of satirical. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of humour in it. Like, I find it very, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I can... I can... <laughs> I can kind of see that, um, like there's a there's a certain element of almost, especially in one incident where he strangled the um, the woman in her house. Yes, and it's almost like a slap, not slapsticky. Maybe that's the wrong type of word to use. <laughs> but when he's because of his OCD, he has to go back, and then he imagines there's a bit of blood behind the. A, a, a framed picture somehow yeah. that hasn't moved. And there is elements of that with it. So I, I mean, I can understand it 
coming from that point of view, but I, I mean, I don't know half much. <laughs> I think <laughs> now we say it out loud, I'm like, oh God, I, I need to call my therapist Shelley back up and let her know about this. Um, but yeah, I think I think that incident is great. I think it. I think for me, it's like taking the piss out of serial killers because in a way like all of them have a lot of deep-rooted issues they are kind of like beholden to their own OCDs their own kind of like mental health problems a lot of it is very sad but a lot of it you know I think you kind of can't feel too sorry for them because it's like you know many of us have have had bad experience in our lives but we're not hacking up bodies in our bloody basement and doing god knows what (laughs) with them we're kind of just going no we will see a therapist or talk to a friend about that um Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of it's kind of taking the piss out of serial killers to be like you know you think you're all this and that but actually you know you can't even kind of kill someone without going back a million times like you said spotting the blood I mean obviously my kind of dark sense of humor I think you know when there's some of the scenes like where the kid um he goes back to kind of change his facial expressions and pose him I find that hilarious and that's horrible but I'm just like oh my god it's I think I'm like it's so dark and messed up that I'm like if I don't laugh I'm probably gonna cry at this so I'm just gonna laugh all the way through that um yeah now I say out loud I'm I'm upset by myself (laughs) (laughs) not at all I, I do understand what you're saying if if because if you if you took everything, maybe strictly, no, maybe not at face value, but as as it's kind of played out on screen, then it, it would be really disheartening. But if you take it from, as you're saying, from Lars von Trier's perspective and how he's meaning to portray it, it adds a, a certain levity to it. Um, like what you're saying before is he's is he almost like holding up a mirror to the people that are watching it with the obsession with serial killers. I've just seen today, there's now a three-parter on Netflix about the John Wayne Gacy tapes. Oh, don't tell me that. I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just came on today. That's crazy. Like, and it's it's a, it's a constant thing, especially Netflix's early doors with like making a murderer and things like that. And I've watched some of the things as well, and I'll probably watch the Gacy one. There was the Bundy tapes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely could, it definitely seems like this is Von Trier saying this is, these are the people that you are obsessing over and taking excess amounts of time out of your life to, to sit and watch, but you're not wanting to kind of face it up. Yeah, it's that's the thing. It is exactly that. It's like, you know, I know a lot of people that are like, oh my God, you you like the house that Jack built. You've seen that, you know, I've seen it a lot of times. It's actually um, like a comfort movie for me. You know me, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> very weird comfort right. movies. But I find it, you know, I really enjoy watching it because of that kind of satirical aspect that I see in it. Um, and I think it's exactly that. I think it's, you know, completely holding up a mirror and being like, you are so quick to judge one 
um people that you know find enjoyment from a film like this and kind of go well you're sick loving that film but you know so many of those people would go oh my god I'm not going to watch the house that Jack built extreme horror films are nasty that's disgusting but they will go and watch that three-part John Wayne Gacy thing and go oh my god did you see that that was horrifying (laughs) but they're sat there enthralled and they want to know the details as well you know like when it comes to a lot of the extreme horror stuff I do a lot of people are like I'm never gonna watch that that's horrible you're sick but tell me all the details and they want to hear all the nasty details so it's kind of like what's uh what's what's the difference really and I think you know Lars von Trier's point is probably what's the difference between a serial killer that goes out and and does all these things versus us sat home going well I don't want to do it but I do want to know all the gory details and I want to know exactly, you know, what did they do to the body? What were all the nasty little gruesome bits of it? Because in a way, you know, it's almost kind of, well, it's not as bad because we're hopefully none of us are actually going out (laughs) later and going, ah, let's find us a a little lady to uh, strangle. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know what I'm doing later. I have no plans, but um, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's um yeah it's interesting what you're saying there as well so it's people want to see it almost through a filter like yeah. they'll ask you about the details or they'll watch the documentary which will have stills of actual murder victims and things like that but it's through a certain filter for them or it's historical so it's not sitting watching it happen in almost in real time during the movie um yeah that's it's 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 a certain kind of modern modern perversion with the, the, the documentaries, maybe. There seems to be so much of them. But, uh, um, there was one incident I wanted to talk about and kind of before we go on to the, the, the performances, and it was, you kind of slightly mentioned it earlier, it was Incident 3, mm. which is the mother and the two sons. Yes. <laughs> this was... <laughs> So this is the one that I found really the hardest to deal with when we spoke about the kind of cold, uh, methodical nature of it, where Jack has basically taken, it seems to be a like a partner or a girlfriend that he's had for certainly a, a period of mm-hmm. time, got to know the boys as well, yeah. and he takes them out for what they think is a hunting trip, but then it turns out to not be any, he murders the two kids and then the next part is where it gets really fucked <laughs> when he sits them up and forces her to have a picnic with them. And then she just, she's obviously in complete shock, lets her wander off and then just chases her down and, and murders her. Um, obviously, we'll talk a bit more about Von Trier's kind of controversial side at the end. This is one of these movies that had people in Cannes fainting in the aisles and all that shite you hear in the papers and um, like walking out and people booing and I don't think it got the 20 minute applause that they seem to <laughs> like reserve for some things could it be this is the scene that's caused it and that it, it, it's what you were talking about earlier with the taboo like child death and child murder is such a hard thing to tackle yeah so I mean in terms of, of, of the walkouts I think this alongside um the the scene i think it's incident four um or yeah no i think it's incident four um where he meets a a, a, he's 
whatever around a, a blonde woman's house who he calls simple which is a mm. horrible yet delightfully funny name for a woman um I shouldn't say that that's awful um <laughs> it does make me laugh though but yeah where he uh cuts her breast off um mm. which is quite a quite a nasty scene but I think yeah going back to kind of the taboo I think child deaths are anything to do with children is always going to be super super taboo which of course I mean kids are you know they're innocent they have no part to play in murders and I think you know when you think of anything that involves children it always upsets us I think whether you're a parent or not it's just not something that you like to see and I think you know Hmm. thinking of this film even for me whilst I I know I just said you know the bit where he makes the little kid smile in the freezer is hilarious um (laughs) which is horrible but I think you know the hunting scene, perhaps the picnic scene doesn't disturb me as much because it's quite okay. poised um, and after they're, they're dead and I, I don't find that too problematic. But I think the hunting itself with the mother when she has to choose between trying to protect both of her sons when she can't actually mm-hmm. protect them both and herself I find that quite distressing um to mm-hmm. see her she's almost you know like a uh I guess a deer in headlights you know trying to trying to protect her two babies against this monster and yeah. and she can't she's completely helpless and I do have to agree like I do find that like it's I wouldn't say I'd take any pleasure in watching that no. scene. And, um, yeah, it's not very nice. No. As, uh, yeah, it was it was the one that I did struggle mm. with the most. But certainly one thing that's constant throughout all these incidents is how great Matt Dillon is in yes. it. Now, I don't... I'm not a huge... Um, in terms of... I don't know a huge amount of Matt Dillon. Like, I, would, I can remember there's something about Mary... And a bit off the top of my head, trying to think of movies that he's been in that kind of escapes me. Um, it's certainly something that we see throughout Von Trier, like uh, the casts that he gets on board are brilliant. Like in this, we have a um, just a small cameo from Uma Thurman mm-hmm. near the start for the first incident, I think it is. Yes. Isn't it? Um, and it seems to be all these major Hollywood stars want to work with him. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's maybe something different from what they've usually had to tackle? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I I adore Matt Dillon in this. And like you said, he's actually, most of the other stuff he's done have been like kind of shitty uh, rom-com movies. So to see him in this is, I mean, I feel like Lars von Trier probably, you know, threw it out and Matt Dillon was like, yes, this is... I need something to take me away from playing, you know, um, not so great, well fleshed out character to Jack, which is interesting career choice. But yeah, I think he's Mm. very, very, very good uh, in this. But yeah, I think in terms of like kind of casting, I think because Von Trier is seen as, you know, a bit of a more kind of artistic director um i think he gets those big names i mean if you if you look at lars von trier's films as obviously we're going to cover a, a couple more um he often uses the same actors and actresses 
for his films. Yeah. And I think he probably, I mean, I've done a lot of reading and they've said that he's, you know, he he does put his actors and actresses through hell when they are filming. Mm -hmm. He makes them do some really tough things and kind of pushes their personal and professional boundaries, but never oversteps the mark where they're uncomfortable, which I think you often hear from other filmmakers, hence why, you know, you think of someone like Charlotte Gainsbourg, who time and time again is in <clears throat> all of his films, is always coming back. Uma Thurman, she's in this, she's coming back time and time again. Clearly, he's a director that he might kind of push them in a professional sense, but to a point that is clearly beneficial to their professions. And I think you can see that with Matt Dillon in a sense that this is, you know, this is an in interesting kind of career choice for him to mm. go after from yeah. playing, you know, probably Boy Next Door to uh, <laughs> Jack, the serial killer who loves to murder small yeah. children. Um, but I think, you know, it's to me is something that I don't understand why it didn't really kick off his career. Like I'd love to see Matt Dillon and other horror films, but I think, you know, Von Trier does kind of have that name that really like you know bolsters and puts I guess something a bit different on the plate for these actors and actresses that makes them I don't want to use the word edgy because someone's gonna be like oh edgelord <laughs> but you know what I mean like a little bit different from from the normal kind of stuff they'd do mm -hmm. so what you were saying there um You'd like to see more of Matt Dillon and and more horror. Would you put this on the horror side of extreme cinema then? This movie. I, and what would you see as the tipping point for that? I for this one anyway. One, I want to see Matt Dillon and everything. Um, I have a crew, huge crush on him <laughs> after seeing him in this, which is wrong on so many levels. But um, I'm okay with it. Uh, I, yes, I'd put this more on the horror side. I think just because. It touches on serial killers. To me, that that immediately falls into more of the horror. Um, I know there's a lot of th thrillers that are based on serial killers, but typically they're kind of, you know, you follow like the detective um, doing their background work. Whereas this one, I think with the gore um, and the detailing and some of those end shots it definitely kind mm -hmm. of goes no no this is this is definitely a bit of a, a horror movie yeah and last point on it speaking about the ending now with it being von trier and with it being more art house film jack kind of you find out that jack's basically going descending into hell as he going through the circles yes of hell? Is that dante's right? inferno Dante's yep. Inferno. So I was wondering about this. Does he just get taken by Verge or does he die? And this is just like his kind of transition, like the police have got through. Because it shows you them coming in to his freezer because they've found out what he's done and who he is. What was your kind of take on that? Do you think that is just open to interpretation or? I think it's I think it's quite left open to interpretation I quite like that um mm -hmm. I think that there's a possibility that he kills himself um that he is potentially you know he's almost built you know he constantly talks about building this house um obviously the film's called the house that Jack built the house is of course made out of um dead bodies which is yeah. fantastic um perfect house you know 
<laughs> I can't wait till my future home is made out of uh, dead bodies uh, that someone else has collected, not myself. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, for him, that's almost his, that's kind of like his nirvana, his happy ending is having that, you know, this is his life's work, his crowning achievement. He can die happy now. He's built the house that he was so obsessed with building. So perhaps, you know, he takes that final kind of full metal jacket bullet and puts it into his own head, which is exactly the moment when he falls, you know, into the descent into hell or the police get him or Verge kind of goes, no, no, hun, you are awful. <laughs> Let's take you straight down. Right. What did what did you think? I thought maybe that it kind of lent towards the the supernatural mm-hmm. side where maybe Verges came out and just went, I'm this I am taking this out of your hands yeah. now. You've done too much. <laughs> Come on with me. Like, that's the kind of way I thought of it. It went lent more to the supernatural um, than him being allowed to take make his own way out or someone else taking him out. He just went, no. Because maybe there's more of a level of consciousness by dragging him into hell that way which he would have to suffer more and give him that kind of carrot at the end where if you can get across the bridge, you can go back up sort of thing. But yeah, um, yeah, I thought it was more of that, more into that side of it. But it, I think what's great about it is it does let you think what you want, yeah. really. And that was uh, that was what was a, a good part of the ending, yeah. Um, so that was the first one, and that was the first <laughs> one I watched. So I think in terms of, maybe in terms of, the violence out of the three we've got, that, that's probably the more extreme one. Yeah. Certainly for consistent levels mm. of it anyway. Um, movie two, and I'll say straight off the bat, this is probably my favourite out of the three, um, was Antichrist. Uh, what would you say? What would you say? Um, what was, could you give us just a wee rundown of Yes, I can. Um, So Antichrist follows um, a couple just known as he and she. Uh, We never get their full names. And the film Mm -hmm. starts um, quite horrifically with the death of their young son. He's probably, I don't know, about two or three years old. Um, This obviously leads to she having quite a, I guess, kind of like a nervous breakdown um ending up in in the hospital uh he who is also obviously her husband um is also a psychiatrist um who offers to help her uh give her therapy through this kind of process um what he wants to do is analyze her fears take her on a on a journey of you know perhaps where her fears are coming from and really analyze you know her mind her emotions um so they go back to a cabin um which i think is maybe like a childhood cabin but she also went there many times uh with with the young son whilst he was still alive and whilst they're at the cabin they basically kind of in a a very dreamlike kind of state together, um, flitting between reality and and dreams, um, explore, you know, fears, the subconscious, the conscious, lots of weird things happen throughout the film. Um, And as you can expect, if your husband is your therapist, probably never going to end 
too well um, for your marriage. And of course, the film gets darker and darker, more depraved, more violent, um, also takes a slight supernatural turn until, of course, there is chaos and devastation between the couple. But again, I guess similar to The House That Jack Built, another quite kind of fairly straightforward plot but still like very Mm -hmm. complex (laughs) when you look at the film Mm -hmm. tell me what do you see my fault. I want to die too. Stay with me. Stay with me. Your thoughts distort reality. That's what fear is. I love you. Let's make a list of things you're afraid of. Where would you feel most exposed? The woods. What scares you about the woods? Everything. Is it any woods in particular? Eden. Imagine you're at Eden. Imagine you arrive at Eden through the woods. Tell me what you see. Darkness comes early down here. I heard a sound. The cry of all the things that are to die. Ground is burning. The ground is not burning. I've just been having a lot of crazy dreams. (laughs) Do you love me? Help me. You said you wanted to help me! Where are you? Nature is Satan's church. The evil you talk about is an obsession. No! you want to kill me? Not yet. It's something that I think he's got throughout all these three films that um, he gets his two leads and the focus is so... uh, the the focus is focused on them. I suppose that, that works. Um, and he, he relies on them to really carry mm. the movie, and none more so than in Antichrist. Yeah. Um, Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe are just fantastic in it from the off. He seems to be like he's this. Um, he wants to be the psychiatrist. He wants to be able to have an element of control while his his wife is having this. Just a, a, a complete kind of what seems like a collapse following the death of their son, their child, anyway. So I'm not sure if it's a, a boy or a girl thinking about that. Um, in terms of their performances in this, and Charlotte Gainsbourg seems to be a bit of a muse for him, like she's come back time and time again. Um, Willem Dafoe as well, but obviously, I think she's the, the kind of main one that he turns to. Um, how do you feel that they? both tackled this which is a movie that is 
so centered on just them and just how they're reacting to this one tragedy over a over a two hour period in terms of the movie. How do you think they kind of carry it together? I think they carry it phenomenally well. I think you know. A film like this that focuses, as as you mentioned, you know, so heavily on their participation and, and their connection with one another. I think what Von Trier does really, really well in, in Antichrist is allows you to see both of the characters from very different perspectives, from the perspectives of themselves, looking in on themselves mm-hmm. and going, this is who I believe I am and this is believe this is what I believe to project outwards and want people to see of me but I think he also does such a phenomenal job at making the audience see he and she from the opposite um perceptions as well which I think you know when you're kind of tackling what is essentially kind of a film about you know relationship breakdown after the loss of um a child and how grief takes them in very different ways I think it's so interesting Mm -hmm. how they both look at each other um, and often you know portray those very difficult emotions that happen to you know parents that have gone through a loss that they are still trying Mm -hmm. to process their own emotions and how they now see themselves after Uh, going through or still going through in this case grief but also how they see one another and interact with that I think it's such a a complex topic and I think you know both um, Defoe and Gainsbourg do so well at kind of showing that and also evolving and changing throughout the entirety of the film because you know they start in particular places and they change throughout the whole film and I think it must have been quite mm-hmm. I would say it was probably quite taxing um, to play those characters mm-hmm. Certainly from the off for the Willem Dafoe's almost seems like as he he's trying to be the anchor he sees himself as being this is the the proper reaction we should have we should be having to a loss, and he wants to see himself as the anchor that's uh, keeping she kind of on the straight mm. and narrow while she's going through a loss, but then at the same time that's kind of counterproductive because she wants to be angry, she wants to be upset, she wants to lash out in certain ways, and they're not good for each other in terms of that way because of it it seems like yeah and I think you know I I mean grief is obviously everyone processes grief so differently and I think Mm -hmm. you know this film really highlights that there's no right or wrong way to process grief what one person might experience is going to be so different to another experience you know I think when my mum died a a week later I was out partying taking drugs drinking you know doing god knows what and I remember a friend saying to me they were like do you really think you should be doing this shouldn't you be at home kind of like you know with your family upset and I was like you you don't get to tell me how to process grief whereas you know years later going through grief I did do exactly that I didn't go out past it I was like I couldn't think of anything worse but it's just you know your I think it's you know how you lose someone the circumstances where you're at and like you said you know 
Defoe in this film is constantly, you know, trying to tell her how she should process her grief from a from a therapist's point of view, which, yeah, right, makes sense. But she wants him to process it and go through it with her as a husband. And he's not doing that. He's yeah. doing what he believes is best for her, but actually is, you know, as you said, doing the opposite. She just wants to go fuck everything and everyone. This is horrible. I lost my child, which is like, yeah, of course. Um, so it's, I mean, in a way you kind of see him as a bad guy, but I don't, and it and it's easy to see him that way because you kind of just go, well, yeah, of course she should be allowed to, you know, process this as she wants. But at the same time, I think it's easy to forget that he's going through grief too. And I think he uses mm -hmm. this as a way to kind of not have to deal with his own grief because he's helping her through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great from the two of them throughout it. And I think that was what kind of drew me towards this a bit more than Jack. Like, yeah. And especially, I think as well, with this one, the, how beautiful the movie mm. is set in the forest and even even the, the kind of horrific scenes, they're so well shot. Um, and it just gets, there was one scene in particular that was just like a, a still shot over the forest. And I think there's maybe the fires on at the time and smoke coming up. It was just beautiful. And you get the lighting that he gets in it as well. Yeah, I thought that was just spot on. Um, you spoke about the kind of weird stuff <laughs> in the movie. Like we see a, a fox that talks to him saying chaos reigns, um, which is before, obviously, again, like we've mentioned with the, the incidents before, Von Trier and this has went by chapters. It's kind mm, of similar yeah. again and what he does later on. Um so do you think that, as you said, there's hints of the supernatural? Do you think there is, again, more open to interpretation? Or do you feel this is a bit more on the nose with it? Um, I th I'm kind of in two camps on this one, in the sense that I think it is a little bit more on the nose in that there's a lot of uh, references in it to witchcraft and the evil mm -hmm. of women, Um. And I'm sure we'll come on to like misogyny and all of that kind of stuff at some point. <laughs> but there's a lot in this about kind of like witchcraft and whether, you know, she is a witch and she's kind of that's her dissertation. All of this for me, I kind of actually dispel the supernatural stuff. I think my my personal yeah. reading of it is all just around kind of the different processes around grief and how that is interpreted i think you know seeing like a a fox saying chaos reigns to me is you know i know personally going through grief chaos reigned my life you know i would be mm -hmm. one minute completely stable the next minute off the actual chain like doing god knows what and i you know i feel like seeing a yeah. fox saying chaos reigns at that point would have made complete sense i'd be like finally something makes <laughs> sense in this life a weird little fox is talking to me and i think you know yeah. the wood to me kind of um represents like fear uh the unknown you know kind of journeys and this this element of perhaps the afterlife um i think there's so many elements of it but i i mean i'd love for it to be kind of witchcraft but i'm also like i don't know i feel like it's just so steeped in in grief that i kind of can't can't mm -hmm. get to the supernatural for me no i i went the other way with it but i think it was more due to the 
kind of way the film mm. ends. This was um, like you've mentioned the witchcraft side of it, and I don't know if I misread the way this scene was cut and was played out, but it shows you the death of the child again, and I wasn't sure if you could see that she had actually seen what was happening, and maybe I've misread the actual scene. But I thought that's what was happening. She was witnessing them walking out onto the balcony and was just letting it happen. And then the the real final scene, um, Willem Dafoe has, he's basically he's killed her and burnt her body. And then he's walking away. And then there's just a, the kind of thousands of women just start descending on him down this hill as it's playing out in black and white, kind of somewhat how it opened. I don't know if that was me just taking it as, as read, but as I said, from when I, I, I kind of seen that, the scene of the child death again, that was when I kind of went, I wonder if this has not been a plan, but certainly been a something that's been in machinations. No, so I like, I definitely saw it as her seeing the child um, fall out the window as well. And I, I see it as being able to be read either kind of like the, the exact way you're saying almost could be even, you know, like a, a sacrifice, you know, for witchcraft type thing. Or I kind of see it, and this is maybe like pushing a bit far in my my ideals of like, let's go down this rabbit hole. Um, but I kind of see it as like, I think when you become a mother, you often completely lose your sense of self-identity. You are, and you are no longer you, you are no longer who you are supposed to be. You are now a mother and you are supposed to push aside all your desires and your wants and your wishes, you know, whether that's sexual, emotional, physical, um, mental, all of those should be pushed aside because who comes first before anything is your child above you, above all else. And I think one of the taboos mm. when it comes to motherhood is is still being this sexual kind of being and still wanting to be you know, held and loved and seen and wanted by your husband, by your partner. And I kind of read this scene as not necessarily that she's going, oh, well, fuck him, let him fall out the window. I'm, I'm having a great orgasm. <laughs> but more of a, a representation of actually, you know, she is so finally after, you know, probably pushing aside her identity for so long, she's finally having this amazing kind of experience and intimacy with her husband, which has probably been lost over the last couple of years, um, having, you know, had had their child, that she's so kind of lost in this ecstasy that for a fleeting moment, she does see her, her child kind of going to the window, but almost, you know, when you're in the moment, you are lost in that moment and it's not that mm -hmm. she's going I don't care it's that she's she finally has felt you know herself for what has been lost yeah. for a long time and unfortunately you know the the child does fall and it's just a little bit too late to kind of go and get there and I think you know for me that kind of plays into the oppression from her husband that is throughout the entire film that he constantly questions everything she ever did with the son you know even to the point where we see her putting the shoes on wrong and he's like did she do it on purpose and it's like you're sleep deprived you're upset the kid's been screaming for hours you probably put your shoe on wrong it's not that you're trying to make him you know all of these things that he kind of insinuates and I almost think that 
kind of final scene is again a representation of all these women that have lost themselves to motherhood and felt oppressed by whether it's a male um doesn't necessarily have to be it could be a partner it could be anyone that kind of made them lose their identity to motherhood almost ascending and taking back claiming what is theirs which is I'm putting out there. That is a crazy, wild <laughs> explanation, but that's that's my thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I think I just went to the witchcraft thing. I just I, I just focused myself on it um, so much that it seemed to be saying that to me. But as you're saying, it is another one of these movies that leaves you the interpretation yeah. for yourself. Um, the last part we're going to talk about, Antichrist. <laughs> And I mean, Lars von Trier is not shy about showing a dick on nope. screen. <laughs> this is the only time I've seen this happen to a dick. And I think, hopefully, it's the last time I see it. So, basically, they're, they're having sex in a cabin and she jumps off. They have an argument, possibly. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, it's all a bit, the whole yeah. film's a bit here, there, and everywhere at times. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> She she jumps off and then grabs a massive two by four and smashes him on the <laughs> dick with it, knocking him out, funnily enough. But then proceeds to wank him until he comes blood. <laughs> and and then drills a hole through his leg and sticks a wheel on him. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, fair enough. Um and is it then Straight away after that, no, is it later on? I've taken again. It's it's a she little then... bit, yeah. It it's like I don't know. It's like five minutes later, like very close, but yeah. They, I think they yeah. go back into the house, or it's all it's all quite chaotic at this yeah. point. Aye, and she's chasing after yeah. them. Actually, I think, and then they go back into the house, and then she mutilates herself as well by cutting off her clip. Yeah. <laughs> And it shows that as well. And there's a lot of blood. Funnily enough, this is the bit that I struggled with the most. <laughs> it's I messaged you at the time after I'd finished watching it saying, Do you know what? I thought this was great. I really enjoyed this movie. It didn't need that bit at the end for me. And then what was your thoughts on it? I then? mean <laughs> I you know me, Andy. I I love a bit of genital mutilation, I'm not gonna lie. Um <laughs> yeah, I do I do love movies that go this far. Um I do think the film would be still a very good film without it. I, I agree with you on that mm -hmm. point. I think that um I don't think it's necessarily needed, but I think it okay. is Von Trier's little sprinkling of you know like fairy dust where he goes oh let's just add a little <laughs> to it um and I love him for that because I think you know I think he could have made what to me would have been a very kind of like a24 witchy you know Robert Eggers kind of vibey movie um Mm -hmm. As you said, you know, very steeped in witchcraft, grief, Ariasta. You've got all those kind of vibes in there. But he went, no, no, just remember, this is a Lars von Trier film, guys. 
we're going to have a genital mutilation in there. And I think, again, for me, it kind of goes back to um, those portrayals around marriage and the fact that being married is, you know, before you have a child, you are two people who are necessarily, you know, you're kind of steeped in a friendship but ultimately what takes you from being friends is is intimacy you know is sex that's what takes mm-hmm. it from being like best friends to uh a marriage together something that's you know bonded together and i think as well is that of course their child was uh you know a product of them being intimate together so by them both you know, losing their their genitalia, it's almost kind of the destruction of having another child and having such a devastation be able to happen again in their lives. I think, you know, she in this film is so distraught at the fact that they brought this life into the world and then they were the ones that allowed this life to to perish in front of their eyes, let's say, that it's almost like the only way mm-hmm. to ever stop such a tragedy ever happening again is of course is to destroy the two body parts that it really was born out of um because you know mm-hmm. uh, i understand that obviously she uh gets rid of her clit which is purely for pleasure not reproductive but essentially you know most sex is for pleasure rather than just going oh we're only going to do it to make a child so actually she's kind of destroyed the two things to her that are the mm-hmm. cause of creating the child that then has died so it's kind of the the end of it really for for any more of 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 that to go down Mm. right i can see i can see um again coming from this from a a completely novice point of extreme cinema um it it was a it just it was a it was the bit where i went (laughs) or oof Making those sort of noises. Um, and with this one as well, do you think this falls in the kind of more extreme horror? The horror side? Or is this more kind of... I think I think most people I know put this in more of the, the horror um, element. But I think... I, I genuinely think most people just put it in horror because of the genital mutilation. Whereas I think, uh, you know, like you said, I think if you took it out, I think it would be a wonderful... Uh, kind of exploration on on grief but I don't think it would necessarily be particularly horror I think you could kind of put it into like the dark drama category but I think when I think when you get a a penis kind of smashed in it's automatically going into a horror category there (laughs) yeah that's fair enough I found it pretty horrific um so on to the last movie and this was quite a an eye opener, to say the least. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably out of out of three, I think this is probably my least favourite. Having Antichrist in mm. the top and uh, House of Jack built just after that. Not saying I didn't see elements of it, enjoy, but I think with this one, I just um, wasn't for me as such. But so this was nymphomaniac. To give it its kind of, I think that the way he wanted it to get released was his one story, but it was split into two parts. It was chapters one and two, up of volume one and two, chapter one and two. I think. Um, oh, I'm, I'm not sure actually. Two. Maybe vol. Vol. I don't know. 
Aye, possibly, aye. Um, so, what is this one about? Um, well... <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't give it away. Surprise, surprise, this one's about an nymphomaniac. Um, yeah, so this one is about an nymphomaniac. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is our main character. Um, and basically, we follow her from the beginning of the story, which she is found by... Um, Oh god, his name escapes me. You're going to remind me in a minute. Um, yeah, it's still in Skarsgård. It. Uh, she's found beaten up, bruised in an alleyway in the snow. He finds her. He takes her in, kind of asks her her story. So similar to the house that Jack built, in the fact that it is storytelling, um, and she mm-hmm. starts from the beginning of when she first became what she believed was a nymphomaniac. Um, I think her first recall is when she was about two years old that she discovered her clip, which um, even he's like, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Um, And she goes through her entire life story detailing in a lot of graphic details, um, Mm -hmm. kind of discovering that she is addicted and obsessed with having sex um and i guess you know she walks us through a few of the key not all of them because i'm sure there's many more that are detailed but kind of the key um male partners that she's had throughout her life that made a significant impact on her um sexual history you know right from who she lost her virginity to to who she has a child with to who kind of opened her eyes to um like the world of bdsm um to when she gets older how she kind of like changes jobs she gets into a relationship with a a much younger girl um and this leads us all up until the point of where she is found in the alleyway by Stellan Skarsgård um and yeah it's a very very graphic depiction of her life um also I think quite quite heartbreaking in a way there's nothing to smile about all I wanted to say was that if you have wings, why not fly? If I asked you to take my virginity, would that be a problem? No, I don't see a problem. You, you have to ask him if he wants to have sex with me. Yeah, um... My name is Joe. Hi, James. And I'm an infomaniac. Sex addict. We say sex addict. I know that. What? Would it be alright if I show the children the whoring bed? I've never met a bad human being. Well, you have now. That's uh, that's not how it goes. Most people don't scream until they hit.
Mm. Yeah. It's um, kind of thematically, it follows a similar path to yeah. Jack, where the story's starting out, and then by the end of the movie, you're back to where the story started almost, sort of. It's kind of similar uh, the way it runs. Um, now, this is a movie that has got right from the off just full sex scenes, like, which is not something you would generally see. I don't know if this was released in the sunny world like Antichrist, but what is the the kind of the best, way, the best way to describe it? What is the line between it being an art house film that's got sex in it? And being just a bit more gratuitous and pornographic, do you know what I mean? Like it's quite because obviously they wouldn't release it in a lot of cinemas if it was just seen as being porn. <laughs> I think there's quite a thin line here, um, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, because it's quite full on. Um, I rewatched yeah. this in the in the middle of the day, and um, my partner walked in a couple of times and literally went please say you're not doing it that openly. Um, and I was like, oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I was like, no, no, like, I can train the movie. It's genuinely a movie. Um, I know that the, the the director's uncut version is, like, so both sections are about two and a half hours, nearly three hours each. They're right, quite okay. long. But I know mm-hmm. the director's uncut versions are both, like, four hours each, which... Um, Andy, I know you and I didn't watch that because, I mean, also we can't give up an entire day. As much as I love I love the trio, I was like, I, don't, I can't watch eight hours of nearly porn. Like, that's too much, guys. Um, I know that's got even more sex in it. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know kind of how they categorise that. But I guess, I guess the difference is that it's not, um, I don't know, I guess it's not entirely porn because it does have... I mean, some porn movies do have great storylines, but this has maybe, you know, perhaps a bit more of a storyline. Um, okay. And it's kind of, I think, you know, a lot of the cinematography around it is a little bit less in your face, um, to say the least. Mm-hmm. It's obviously yeah. kind of sporadic, the sex scenes we see. And I think a lot of them, mm-hmm. I don't think they are necessarily portrayed in a erotic sense like they are there to make you feel almost disturbed that you're you're seeing this Mm -hmm. and you're seeing you know a lot of these acts yes they are completely consensual some of them are not some of them are a little bit like oh you know make you feel uncomfortable so I guess in a way they're kind of not they're not designed to turn you on which obviously for me is the difference between watching a porn film and watching this film Mm-hmm. Aye, that's fair enough. Aye. Um, the another th- thing that we can come on to with this is the difference between part one and part two, or volume one and volume two. I just had a wee check there. Um, and it definitely seems that volume one is more about the kind of recklessness of youth, maybe. Whereas, and if it's at the end, of, at the end of volume one, she loses kind of sensation. Um, for when she's having sex and can't feel anything, which for her is devastating. And but then, so that's all about the kind of recklessness. Volume two is more about a darker mm. side and uh, and to being an adult and what can you can maybe kind of open yourself up to. We see um, again 
talk a lot about the cast in the, all these three movies. Um, Jamie Bell terrifying in it, but he doesn't really doesn't act out any way that she's not kind of want them to in terms of the relationship they've got together. Yeah. But it's so menacing and horrific, and that's the kind of the, the jump from chapter volume one to two. Yeah, I think um, you're completely right. Like volume volume one is definitely like you said that kind of recklessness of, and I think you know it, it definitely portrays. I'm pretty sure most people is that you know when we're young we kind of sleep with people and you fuck around and you're like yeah it's fine. You know what what really is the problem if we as you see on and not saying that I've done this, God, <laughs> you know, go on a train and it's like you and your girlfriend. How many guys can you sleep with? in you know a three-hour train journey um the obviously doing that is is exceptionally dangerous you know putting yourself in such a scenario whether a man or a woman putting yourself in a scenario like that is really dangerous it can lead to i mean stds but also you know sexual assault many many problematic things mm-hmm. um but i think you know when you're young you you do put yourself in probably kind of like dangerous sexual situations because you're not really thinking about you know unwanted pregnancies or you know catching a disease or getting assaulted you're just kind of thinking I'm having fun it's all a bit of a laugh I've just Mm. discovered my sexuality ha 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 this is great whereas like you said in the second one I think what you see is she's obviously she's done all the normal sex stuff that that people do and and she's realized she's got this you know kind of unwavering obsession this you know that she can't kind of like satisfy in a normal sense so as you said she goes to the the darker side of things and I think you know many of us as we get older we kind of realize it's like yeah sex does get a bit boring it's a bit samey you know you do the same thing there's only so many positions you can try until you go yeah I know what that one looks like thank you very much um you know and especially I guess if you're with a long-term partner as well which she does eventually you know get with her long-time partner with Jerome and they have a kid and you can tell it's all become quite quite samey and like you said she goes to Jamie Bell who what's interesting about him is of course you know it's all consensual it's not um it's nothing wrong you know he's not he even says to her I don't think you're ready for this um and what he's all about Mm. is of course you know bdsm hitting whipping and his rule is that he will never have sex with her it is purely you know kind of um sadism and matrichism which a lot of people are into that's a very normal thing for them but i think seeing it on screen is quite um I think it's quite controversial because I, even though I think mm-hmm. loads of us, probably so many of us have tried it, you know, dabbled in it a bit, maybe don't like it, but have gone up, you know, I've been here, blah, blah, blah. I still think it's quite a controversial thing. But even in this, you see, I don't think she ever really fully loves it. She's just looking for something yeah. that's not just, oh, I'll have sex with an next person then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a stimulant almost. Yeah, as- yeah, exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, going on to the cast, and this one's probably his kind of biggest and best ensemble. You've got Defoe again, Gainsbourg. You've got um, Stellan Skarsgård, mm. who's great in it. Uh, Jamie Bell, Shia LaBeouf. Um, I've uh, Christian Slater. Nearly yeah. forgot about him. 
Um, for me, my favourite performance in the whole thing was the short cameo from Uma Thurman <laughs> again, where uh, Joe has said to one of our partners, um, you won't leave your wife for me, so that's why we can't, I can't do this. And he then just suddenly turns up at his door, a door, having left his wife, but the wife and kids have came <laughs> with him. And she and Uma Thurman comes in and is just so matter of fact about it. Cause I think does she say uh, the boys, the boys want to see the whole's bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's a, that's quite a comedic scene and tragic at the same time. I thought it was a cracking scene. I agree. I think it's one of my favourite scenes as well because, like you said, like it it is quite funny because it's like so. Yeah, she's like the boys are coming in. We're coming to see, like you said, the whole the whole the hose bed. Um, can you at least say good? I think she says something like, "Can he at least say good night to his children?" You know, and they're all in there. She's <laughs> got the whole family in the house, and she. I mean, what is so. What I find so interesting about that scene as well is that to her, he's just another guy. You know, she doesn't really care about him because she's got like 20 lined up waiting in the car downstairs as we see when the other one knocks on the door with the flowers. To her, they are numbers. They are nameless men that just, you know, satisfy a need. But what you kind of forget in like you know, the story is told through her eyes and we just see her addiction, how sad it is. But I think what we never really fully appreciate until that scene is is almost the devastation she's leaving on a lot of the men's lives. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that Von Trier gets called, you know, a misogynist and blah, 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 blah. But I think actually, you know, sex addiction has always kind of been portrayed as something that men are afflicted with most it's like you know you think of celebrities like tiger woods it's like oh yeah of of course they're addicted to sex they're a man you know it's always like a man's problem whereas actually you know and i think what von trier does so well in so many of his movies is showing that women like sex just as much as men if not more in a lot of cases and actually you know Mm -hmm. a lot of men are very emotionally tied to women and you know we see that in nymphomaniac one and two in like the fact where he's left his wife because he wants to be with her and she's like i've got a nine o'clock showing up who i'm gonna fuck and he's like (laughs) there with his wife devastated she's just destroyed an entire family and she's like and to her that's just like and what and we see that you know with how she is towards jerome jerome that's his wife with you know the mother of his child and mm-hmm. she's like all she cares about is going and getting her kicks elsewhere she could not give you know a flying shit about the kid and her husband she's like well i need to go mm-hmm. and sleep with someone else and i think that's a really yeah. interesting way to kind of flip this you know element of of sexual perversion on its head mm-hmm. yeah it's certainly it's what um like uh, yeah, as you're saying, she even turns around to the the wife, uh, Mrs. H, I think she's called on it, and says, I, "I don't love your husband, I never have." Yeah. And then so she's just like, "Well, that's that's it, fuck," because she yeah. doesn't care of the the devastation she's caused, and it's what ends up leading her to um, kind of at the end of the movie, where she's had Mia Goth as this kind of prodigy. And she ends up 
being with Jerome. And that's the first time, is it maybe that it's the first time that she feels that side of the devastation? Or is it more the betrayal of the, the kind of younger one that she's taken under her wing, you think? I think it's, no, I think it's actually, you know, the, the aspect of devastation. I think she has always been the object of desire. And I think that's what she's wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, she's always wanted to be the the star, let's say, of you know each kind of pornographic movie in its own in its own sense. She is, you know, the one that these men want to be with. They want to have sex with, and and that's where she gets her kicks. And fair enough, you know, everyone wants to be seen as kind of you know the most attractive person in the room. And for her, mm-hmm. she's always she is always been that um and she's never you know we don't see throughout throughout the entirety of the film we never see her um kind of like cheated on or we don't see her turned down like she always gets what she wants no matter what it (laughs) who it's with what it is um even in an early scene you know she, she, she seduces a married man on the train who repeatedly says no 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 and her goal is, because yeah. her friend says, oh, I'll give you a bag of chocolates, which, <laughs> mad, but, you know, girl got to do what she got to do for, for some chocolate. <laughs> um, you know, and she gets the married man to to kind of sleep with her. That's That's her thing. You know, it's almost part of her kick. So I think when she finally finds, you know, this, I guess, you know, Mia Goth's character is quite a tender creature you know she's young she takes her in almost as a daughter and it turns out that they have this you know relationship in the end I think she suddenly realizes what it's like to yeah lose the person you love and have your life destroyed because sex is more important Mm -hmm. and I think it hurts even more that's with Jerome who could have been and was the the only other person that loved her you know the two people that really did love Mm -hmm. her have betrayed her the most but in a way you know not saying that she's a a bad person at all but in a way it's kind of you know karma because she's she never really has considered anyone else's feelings um but her own which is unfortunately you know due to her addiction it's not necessarily because she's Mm. completely selfish yeah and the the whole film ends in kind of a tragic and dark note so obviously once she attempts to uh, shoot jerome but the gun doesn't fire, um, and then so Jerome and uh, Mia Goth's character beat her up, piss on her, like have sex in front of her, and then this is when she, this is the point where Stellan Skarsgård has came across. Um, she then says to him, once she's finished telling her story, that you might be my first ever friend, and you think that would be it then, that's the end of the story. But then there's almost like like a stinger where he comes in. He has explained earlier on in the movie that he's a virgin and he's asexual, so he's never really had much interest in it. But then he feels not compelled, but um, almost within his rights to go and try and almost rape her when she's sleeping. And from what it sounds like, she shoots him Mm. and runs off. So it's that double whammy of seeing the man that she had the child with that she that loved her and then this friend that she's made is what she feels is her first friend 
attempting what he does on her at the end, and it's quite a it's quite a bleak, tragic it's, ending. It's honestly the ending like breaks my heart. I think it's like like you said, you know, throughout the entirety of the film, she doesn't she didn't really have any she didn't have any friends, you know, and if she was to make a male friend, she would probably sleep with them because she's so so afflicted with her addiction for for sex and I think what really strikes me about that kind of last um scene and what he says is I think he turns around and says you know but you've you've been with so many men why not me and the point is that all of those other men she wanted to be with you know and I think the point that the the film kind of makes and Von Trier is making at the end here is it doesn't matter how many women uh, how many men she's slept with you know how many people she's been with she chose to be with those people and that still does not give you know any man or woman the uh, right to to take her unwanted and I think it's such a a poignant message to put at the end of a film we see this woman you know giving blowjobs getting you know fucked here there and everywhere you see the lot of it but then still it's like that still was a choice she made and you can't take that away Mm -hmm. just because she's done all this and I think you know that's something that in society is still a sad fact that for for you know anyone really it's a matter of gender still stands true and so you know that's why I think that kind of ending it is a gut punch but I just think it's like a really mm. important ending to a film that kind of looks at you know what is consent and sex and and all of those elements. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was quite a, a strong ending, as it says, but a more um, a, a bit more, a, a bit less kind of open for interpretation <laughs> like the other two we've had yeah. earlier on. Um, <clears throat> last week comment I was what to make on it was just talking about that scene with the child on the balcony and the same music playing from Antichrist that, that got me going again I was like, oh, no, on, you were like no I can't do this one of these movies, <laughs> one of these movies is not going to kill a child it? I, I love the addition of that scene I think a lot of people could maybe go mm. is it needed um, but I think again it ties for me it kind of ties so Lars von Trier um, and if if you want someone to talk about this in, in much better detail than I ever can Mary Wilde um, looks at Lars von Trier mm. and his trilogies so his films fit into clear trilogies um, and, and thematic trilogies of, of how they kind of work Um and for me, this is, and Mary Wilde touches on it, this is kind of part of, of that in terms of, you know, grief and loss in the fact that it's all yeah. about uh, female sexual liberation. And again, the fact that she kind of puts herself before her child, which is not necessarily a bad thing to do. Um, and in this case, obviously, the child thankfully is fine but I think it's a throwback (laughs) to the fact that you know just because a woman has a child does not mean that that child is always number one in their life and often actually they do need to be remembered as a as a female that needs pleasure and needs to be you know looked after as a as a female, as a human, as whoever they are Um, and I think that's Lars von Trier's little kind of just throwback to 
remember. <laughs> <laughs> There's been so many people that like can just sitting with PTSD, just like no, no, fuck. Good stuff. So, just a kind of final word on Lars von Trier. We've kind of touched on it a mm. little bit. He's been accused of a lot of things in terms of pushing his actors. There's also claims or or maybe assumptions made that he's a misogynist. Um, I know he said that he it didn't not that he sympathised with Hitler, but he he seen himself as a Nazi and <laughs> felt a can was it, I felt a connection. Is is he trolling when he's saying that? Do you think it is him knowing what people were expecting from him, or is it more of a? I don't see. I think the Nazism thing is maybe. I don't. No one's going to openly admit to being a Nazi, especially not in terms of ways of that. But is it is it a way of him, kind of similar to the way he is with uh, his filmmaking, but it's. A strength of opinion, maybe that that doesn't. I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. <laughs> maybe it doesn't translate the best. I I just think he loves to push buttons. I think you know. I think there's some directors out there that genuinely say stuff that they believe in, um, and they do things that are really questionable, um. And they treat, you know, actors and actresses that they have on board in ways that show that they're awful people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you think of you think of so many directors and stuff, you know, even if you think of someone like Harvey Weinstein, he never went out and said anything that was controversial. Um, and on the outside, everything looked fine. But, you know, you dig a bit deeper mm-hmm. and we've all seen what he was doing. You know, he was raping and abusing yeah. people. So sometimes it's like the nicest people out there. Um, not saying that all nice people are horrible people, but, you know, some <laughs> of the on the surface level who seem like the nicest kind of people in the show business um, are the worst people. Whereas someone like Lars von Trier, yeah. I think he purposefully says this stuff just to go, oh how can I get them all going oh my god you know going oh my god what has he said um you know I think of some of the other extreme directors I've spoken to them and they are lovely humans you know they are the nicest people but they will outwardly go and say stuff just because they know that it gets people going oh how could you? Um, I think of Stephen Byro, who owns Unearthed Films, who have done um, like the remakes of uh, the Japanese guinea pig films. And he says stuff just because he knows that it really pisses mm. people off and they're like, oh my God, he's sick. Um, Tom Six, you know, director of The Human Centipede, another one. He, he yeah. knows that people get so riled up when he goes, Oh, but I think this, and it's and it's just controversy for controversy's sake. And I think Lars von Trier does the same. He just goes, "I know what's gonna, I know what's gonna, you know, get me cancelled on Twitter tomorrow. Let's post this," and everyone goes, "Oh my god, outrage!" And it's like, yeah, but yeah. you know, anyone can say anything. It doesn't mean that they really believe it. Mm-hmm. And then people go, people who don't know him go, "Who's Lars von Trier?" They look things up. They find these movies. Exactly. They... He keeps himself in the kind of public persona. Yeah. I um do you know after a great chat tonight, uh, talking about things that I wasn't sure I would be able to say much about, but 
I enjoyed them. <laughs> um, they'd get something, at least from everyone. I, said, I think Antichrist was genuinely fantastic. Um, is there any other of his that you would recommend? Maybe. Um, Melancholia is pretty good. <clears throat> That's next on my uh, that's next on my list. That's the kind of uh, apocalypse one, isn't it? The yeah, it's probably one of my, I would say one of my lesser um, favorite films. Maybe because it's not as <laughs> it's not as dark <laughs> as some no. of the others. Um, but I did really like it, and I love Kirsten Dunst, so that one's a really good one. Um, then there's of course uh, Dancer in the Dark is another pretty dark one um, that he did. And then um, Dogville, which has Nicole Kidman in, and I am obsessed with Nicole Kidman. Um, But, yeah, I'm I'm patiently waiting for Von Trier to do something else because it has been a while now since The House That Jack Built and... um, I need I need more von Trier goodness in my life. <laughs> um, Zoe, thanks very much for joining me tonight. Um, couple of last things. Where can everyone find you? Um, firstly, thank you for having me, Andy. And I'm glad that I didn't completely scar you for life. Next time, <laughs> next time will be the time that I definitely do that. Uh, <laughs> in terms of finding me, I am sober with a shotgun on all social media channels, podcasts, YouTube, all of that jazz. Um, and then obviously, if you want to find out more about horror stuff, head over to Ghouls Magazine, um, which you can avoid listening to me talk crap and instead listen to the wonderful writers talk about wonderful things um much more eloquently than than i can i'm signed up for the newsletter so yeah definitely uh, give that a check um the last part is i've asked you to pick a song to play out on um what have you picked and why i have picked fame uh by david bowie and that is because it is the song that plays throughout the house that jack built and every time i watch that film days later i put on loud and i dance around the house thinking about um slaughtering young children uh yeah That's uh, I can yeah, I can see how that links to <laughs> I'm sure that's what Bowie wrote it thinking about. Um Zoe, thanks very much. And this is Fame by David Bowie. <laughs>